This is from Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and 18 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. While all the people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was, sc- and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered away because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seeds fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is a seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once, receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. All right, that was awesome. Uh, As Nick said, my name is Jason Losey. I'm a member here at TGC Park Slope. And I have spoken once or twice before, but it's been a while, so I'm glad to be back. If you were here last time I spoke, I should probably talk to you about your attendance record, because it's not the best. <laughs> uh, kidding, we don't do that here. Um, we don't know if you've come or gone. That's also bad? <laughs> probably should just hit reboot on the opening here. Uh, all right, awesome. Uh, seriously, I'm glad to be here, and I was excited to actually be talking about this parable, uh, because it's steeped in irony for me, because it's talking about... Uh, farming and soil and land. And uh, I have tried to tend my little plot of suburban and city soil over the years and have not had a ton of luck. I'm pretty good, I found, at growing dirt and rocks and weeds and things of that nature. But the, uh, but the fruitfulness of the crop mentioned in the parable has not been what I have experienced. But one time, we did have something like that. We lived in Georgia for a while, and we had this, uh, we were members of this community uh, community garden, and uh, it was run by the front man of this rockabilly band from the 90s, and he was one of these guys where you'd go down, and he would give you this really, 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 probably a little bit too long of a hug uh, every time he greeted you, because he was just so excited that you had come down to see the garden, and he would just tell you his vision for this place, and it was fantastic, and it was sort of like, um, it was nestled behind the sprawl of Atlanta, uh, behind this highway and this uh, neighborhood right along the Chattahoochee River. And we would go down there as a family in the evenings and on the weekends, and we would tend to and work on this little plot of land. And we actually had a pretty amazing crop this one summer that we, that we did this. 
And the thing I remember the most about this place isn't necessarily the rockabilly frontman, but also the soil. Um, this place had been tended to and cared for over the years. It had never been developed, and it sat right along the Chattahoochee River. So it was rich with nutrients. And so the soil here was ripe for and perfect for growing. And so um, one of the things that we were able to do was produce a pretty large bounty, and we didn't have to work the actual like, nutrients into the soil like you might do here if you were to plant something. It just sort of like worked. And I know that we don't exactly live in a farming context here in Brooklyn. Despite everyone's flannel and work boots, there's not a lot of agriculture happening, even with the farmer's market right outside. It's just not something that we're used to. It's not what's happening maybe even in our local um, context. But it is something that is getting a lot of attention in a national sort of uh, conversation. We hear a lot about food production. We hear a lot about sustainable farming. We hear a lot about the environment. And what we're, happening, what we're, what we're finding is the obvious. When you don't take care of the earth the way God suggested that we take care of it in Genesis, when you extract from the earth and when you exploit it for your own gain and you don't put back into it, bad stuff happens. If you do not think this is true, go take a dip in the Guanas Canal and let me know how you feel when you get done. The same could be said of our heart. Our heart needs to be tended and cared for. Otherwise, it will become toxic and you will have a heart like the Guanas Canal and no one wants a heart like the Guanas Canal. That is a fact. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, in the parable of the sower, it seems pretty straightforward. Jesus gives the parable. The disciples say, what's this all about? Jesus tells them, hey, this is what it's about, and we kind of got it. So in a lot of ways, you think this would be a really short sermon, and in other ways, you're going to be completely wrong. Um, but I do want to spend some time talking about uh, the good soil and how we might cultivate it, and I want to talk about two big ideas. The first is an idea of land in the Bible. I think land in the Bible is super interesting because it shows us so much of God's character. And I think if we can talk about land in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, we can learn a lot about God and it can kind of provide this umbrella framework for how we might look at this parable. The second thing I want to talk about are practices and rhythms that will help us cultivate our heart. And I want to talk about two specific ones, a practice of place and a rhythm of solitude, along with the natural byproducts of those things. Um, recently I picked up uh, letters to my daughter by Maya Angelou and in that book she describes uh, Christianity or becoming a Christian as a lifelong endeavor and so today we're talking about this lifelong endeavor of cultivating our hearts this lifelong endeavor of putting on the image of Christ and this lifelong endeavor of aligning our, aligning our hearts with his so I'm going to pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll get going Heavenly Father thank you for um, this church body thank you for um, the ability to gather in a public school and worship you and to um, come before your throne. Pray, Lord, that you would align our hearts with you, that you would reshape our imaginations um, to be more like yours, and that we would see the world and we would see our neighbors the way that you see them. Pray for our city, Lord. What a crazy week um, of turmoil and violence. We pray, Lord, that you would bring peace upon this place and that you would um, comfort and heal and bring, um, bring a sense that, um, that only you can bring. We pray, not, we pray, Lord, not for that thing now in this exact moment because it happened, <laughs> but we pray also for that peace all of the time. We pray that you would bring peace upon this city, that you would bring, bring, bring peace upon this world, and that you would rid it of violence. 
We pray for the folks running the marathon today, Lord, that you would um, that you'd give them safety, that you'd give them strength, help them to have a good time. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so before Jesus teaches this parable, we find him a few chapters back preaching his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this discourse, Jesus sets out a tone and a vision for the kingdom of God that is now at hand. And in that, uh, or after that, he begins traveling around and upending the cultural norms of the day. He's healing people, he's uh, speaking out against religion, and he's causing a lot of trouble. And the Pharisees are getting mad, and they're plotting to trick him and to kill him. And so Jesus is hopping all around. And when we find him in this scene, he's sitting by a lake by himself, and a crowd gathers. And so many people gathers, it says that Jesus hops on a boat and he starts teaching. And so in the parable, he's talking about soil uh, and, the, and, the, and the rocky soil and the shallow soil and the good soil. And so, like I said, I thought it might be interesting to take a little bit of a detour and look back in the Old Testament at what we can learn about the character and promises of God as it might relate to land in the Bible. Um, and I, I'm no, like I said, I'm no farmer. I do own a lot of flannel because I grew up in the 90s, but I don't, I don't know a lot about it. Um, and I come from a farming background, actually, with my grandparents. And, um, and so it's sort of, I guess, in my blood. And so over the years, I've actually kind of been interested in what a theology of land might look like. And so I want to I take a sidestep back over and look at land in the Bible from, from Genesis to the Israelites walking into the promised land. And we learned three things that I want to point out. First, God is a God of graciousness. Graciousness. Land represents a major promise of God in the Old Testament. First, we see um, the promise of God in Genesis to Abraham as he sets out the vision for the land, and then later we see it as they enter into the land. God says to Abraham, "On the day the Lord made a co- on, the, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land." And so we see God making that promise with Abraham and therefore with Israel. Now the thing is this, um, from the time of that promise, from the time that they entered into uh, the promised land, hundreds of years took place, and some pretty significant uh, events in history happened before they got there. Primarily, they were enslaved in Egypt. And the Israelites, when they were working in Egypt, they had a very different view of land than maybe we might even have now, it, uh, not coming from a farming context or, and not coming um, from... Uh, that particular period in time. And that is that the land was demanding. The land required effort from them. They had to put something in in order to possibly get something out. But in the promised land, God flips that. And he flips it from effort to graciousness. Deuteronomy 6.10, when Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. In the new land, God has given them everything that they want with no effort of their own, but through his complete and total graciousness. So God is a God of graciousness. Second, God is a God of abundance. The gifts of God in the promised land and even today are not gifts that are given in scarcity. Abundance dominates the Old Testament narrative, and especially in Genesis. It is good, it is good, it is good. God claims this over and over during his creation. The earth is teeming with the abundance of God. But then later on in Genesis, something else happens, and Pharaoh has a dream. And in that dream, Pharaoh, uh, in that dream, Pharaoh sees a famine, 
And Pharaoh gets nervous about that famine, and he starts uh, collecting up all of the food and storing it, and starts to control the food supply for the people. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the food supply, and all of a sudden now you have to come, and you have to put up, um, you have to put something up in order to get something back, uh, and in order to get food. So they put up uh, first their land, and, and their cattle, and things like that, and eventually they put them, themselves up, and all of a sudden they find themselves enslaved. And up until that point, the Genesis narrative had been, had been a narrative of abundance, and all of a sudden we have um, a narrative of scarcity. So when they get to the promised land, another shift has to occur. It's not just effort to graciousness, it's scarcity to abundance. Deuteronomy 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and you are satisfied... Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now that sounds like a pretty awesome setup in Settlers of Catan. um, And it also sounds like a pretty good place to live. And so we see that God is providing abundantly. We see this rejection of scarcity as God gives the people what they need in order to um, live. And we see that in that they are satisfied. Praise the Lord for the good land he has given you. So abundance and then third, mystery. Uh, when farming, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we plant a seed, and then we kind of just, you know, we wait. Will it rain? What will happen? He- Heather and I, every summer, try to plant some stuff in our back patio. And, and, and when I say Heather and I, I guess I just mean Heather. Um, and um, it's always like, you know, some vegetables and some herbs and things like that. And so last summer, we had planted a tomato. And I, by the way, I never liked tomatoes until I started growing them. They're like a completely different thing. Um, and so anyway, we, had, we were growing this tomato, and Heather was out of town with the kids, and so I was in charge of it, and I went out there one, one day, and it was like 99.5% ready. And I was like, man, I'm going to get this tomato tomorrow. And so I went in the house, and like, I don't know, I just kind of like was thinking about this tomato. And I was like going to slice it up, put on a hummus sandwich, a little sea salt, and just in my mind, it was going to be amazing. So the next morning, I wake up, and I'm excited about this tomato, and I walk out into the backyard, and there's a huge bite taken out of it. <laughs> and I, I don't know what got it. I imagine it's some cute little bunny rabbit hopping around Park Slope, nibbling off of people's vegetables in the cutest way possible. But the point is this. You don't know, you don't know what's going to happen when you farm. You can't predict the outcome. If God wants you to have a tomato, you're going to have a tomato. If not, rats are going to take a huge bite out of it, and you're not going to get it. So we don't know. We just do our part. And we wait and we see. There's an unknown to it, a mystery as to how God works. In the wilderness, the Israelites were in the wild land. It was barren. They could not, there was, not only was there no seed, they couldn't grow anything. Yet God gave them manna. Manna comes from the Hebrew word, what is it? <laughs> so there was a mystery to it. But God provided in abundance, in a mysterious way, and they were satisfied. So as we move into discussing this parable, I want to keep these three big picture ideas in mind of graciousness, abundance, and mystery. And I wonder if when we, when we review this parable with these three things in mind, if we might start to see the character of God, and we might start to understand what God has for us through this parable. So, in the parable, Jesus describes three types of soil, shallow, rocky, and good. Uh, we've already talked about the last couple of weeks, shallow and rocky, and so this week we're talking about the good soil. Here, Jesus describes someone who hears the word, 
they understand it, and they produce a crop that is far greater than what was sown. There's an abundance in the crop. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Then, further down, whoever has, will be, whoever has will be given more, and they will have abundance. And not only is the crop abundant, but the seed is ab- abundant. The farmer's operizing the seed. It's like going all over the place. It's hitting rocky soil and shallow soil, and there's no shortage of seed either. So we see, we see abundance in the seed, and then we also see abundance in the crop. And so I want to talk to you today about how we cultivate our hearts, how we create good soil, how we prepare for and ready our hearts so that we can hear and discern what God has for us, so that when we fall upon troubled times, our, our crop does not waste away. Look, rats are going to eat your tomatoes. Life is going to be fill, filled with disappointment. The promises of God are not of ease and comfort. They are of joy, they are of peace, they are of abundance. But in this world, you will have trouble. And so, how do we cultivate a heart so that when we have trouble, when we run into these things, we can wait for it and we can be ready for what God has for us? And so, as I was kind of thinking through this under those large umbrellas, and then I was kind of thinking through Brooklyn, uh, and in 2017, a couple things kept popping into my mind. And that was a practice of place and a rhythm of rest. And practices and rhythms are important because they allow us to continuously align our hearts with God. They allow us to reshape our imaginations towards the things that God cares about. They allow us to see the world in, in, in some of the ways that God sees the world. And they allow us to care in a deep and a meaningful way around the things that God cares for. So first I want to take a look at the practice of place. Now before we go too much further, I, I do want to make a state pretty emphatically uh, make a point that pretty emphatically, I'm not making a case for living in New York, and I'm also not making a case for not moving. You should live where God has you to live, and if God calls you to move, you should move. If it's Topeka, Cincinnati, the land of suburban milk and honey, Nashville, go to those places. Go where God has you to live. Um, but when you are there, or when you are here, create a sense of place. Um, now, in my day job, I'm a designer. And in design, there's a, there is a distinction and there's discussion around place versus space. Um, and in anthropology and in even theology, this distinction is made by t- talking about the idea that space is generally regarded as abstract. Um, space is an area without any accountability. Imagine it like a vacation where you're just sort of filling it with experiences and there's no really responsibility and there's nothing for you to do. And um, you're just kind of filling it up with anything that you want. Place, on the other hand, is more concrete. Place is where important things happen. It's place where we remember and history is made and we carry these things out across generations. The things we do in place, the actions that we take, give it a, give it a, a, a personal and familiar context. And place is filled with history and relationships. And in that history and relationships, we actually start to form part of our identity through what Christ does with us. Geographer Ifu Chuan states, place is a field of care. Place says, I am here and I'm going to be responsible for what is in front of me. So what does a practice of place look like? What does it mean to have a field of care? What does it mean to be responsible to or able to respond to our place? I think um, it boils down to two dominant and emerging uh, and connected themes. First is rootedness and second is redemption. Now, rootedness, I get, is a bit of a funny idea in this transient land 
of Brooklyn that we live in. I don't think it was always transient. Talk to your neighbors. They've been here forever, uh, some of them. Um, So we know that Brooklyn has the capacity to not be transient. Um, And so we know then um, also that we can provide a sense of rootedness to it. Um, So can we have a Christian vision for making it something more? Can we flip it on its head and can we offer it um, Christian hope and a Christian vision for flourishing even after we were gone, even after we've dead, even after we've moved, what would that look like? So how might we care for and redeem the economic, ecological, moral, and formal order of our city? As a Christian, how can we care for, the things, care for these things and be responsible for them? How can we create a sense of place by shopping in and contributing to our local economy, by, 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 by visiting the same diners and coffee shops? How can we beautify our city, not just in cleaning it up, but in the things that we make and in the way that we make them? How can we contribute to it in that way? How can we care for those who don't care for themselves? And how can we contribute to the overall order and stability of our city? Our sphere of influence can extend into Brooklyn and we can extract everything out of it or we can give it life. We can speak into it and we can market and define it by our relationships. We can market and define it by our Christian vision for the city and we can market and define it by being present here and speaking into it and investing in it. This posture towards place leads to both rootedness and redemption. And one way that we can contribute to that and we can work towards answering those questions is not just by ourselves but in through community, and by having a healthy posture of what community looks like. So what is a healthy posture of community? Well, first of all, uh, we have to recognize that community is not a place to have your needs met. I hate to break it to you, but community is not about you. The very definition of it lets us know that it's not (laughs) about you. Um, It is about a sense of responsibility towards a collective unit or thing. The other thing we have to realize is community is not the ultimate goal of church. It is a thing... But it is not the thing. And if we make it the thing, then community can become an idol. It can actually work against us and work against the very thing that community can do. Instead, community is an outcome of living together and working towards the same ideas. Working towards rootedness and redemption. Pastor and author Mark Scandretti sums it up this way. Community is not the best goal in itself. It is the byproduct of shared vision, activities, practices, and commitments. The quality of relationships we want can't come from a posture and attitude that ask, how can my needs be met? Community can't be manufactured, nor is it instantaneous. True community develops over time through patience, love, and mutual commitment. So how does this then connect to rootedness and and redemption? Well, communities not only give a sense of rootedness, but they can serve as mechanisms for redemption in our places. Um, In the New Testament, Jesus takes all 613 of the Jewish laws and he reduces them down to two. Love God and love your neighbor. There's a vertical love for God and there's a horizontal love for our neighbor. Now, reducing them down to these two things was radical in and of itself, but Jesus takes it a step further and he redefines neighbor. In uh, that time, a neighbor was someone who was your cultural equivalent. They looked like you, they acted like you, they thought like you, they dressed like you. And Jesus says, nope. Your neighbor is someone who you are proximate to. He removes the barrier around what might be considered neighbor and says, no, if they're near you, they are your neighbor and you are to love them, even if they're your enemy. And so our communities then should reflect this vertical and horizontal love. And this means that we work together to love God and love others as we serve to redeem our place. The primary expression of community is always outward. 
because community is a reflection of the communal God who made us, and that communal God worked and created things, and he works and redeems things, and so he has a bias towards working and redeeming. Therefore, our community should have that same bias of working and redeeming. And if your community is not working to redeem our place, if your community is not working and, and, and trying to make things better and serving others, then you're in a group, I guess, but you are not in full Christian community. Who did Jesus who did Jesus help? Who did Jesus care about? Jesus spent time caring for the oppressed, the marginalized, the sad, the loser. These are the people that Jesus cared about. And if we want our hearts to be aligned with Jesus's, then these are the people that we should be caring about as well. These are our neighbors. These are the people that we were able to respond to, and these are the people that lead to redeeming our neighborhood. And when we do this, we will find rootedness here in our lives. And this church's life will extend for generations to come. So we see a practice of place and we see how that practice of place uh, might flush out. And next we have rhythms. Uh, Rhythms are ways in which we can create patterns that allow our hearts to more closely align with God. That pull us in a day-to-day operating pattern that looks and feels more like how God has designed us to look and feel. The psalmist says, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And as we think about what rhythms might be appropriate here, the one that kept coming into my heart this week and my mind as I prayed was to a rhythm of rest and specifically through solitude. Now, solitude matters because of the distractions of our world. It is an interior escape of the heart from the exterior bombardment of the world. And I'm not talking about isolation or loneliness. Being alone isn't any more of solitude than being on the F train at 8 a.m. puts you in community. These aren't the same things. I'm talking about a practice of a quiet heart, an interior solitude that strips out the busyness of life. It strips out the idea that you have to get get everything done on your own, and every chance of success you have is based on how hard you work. It allows you to sit back and be still, And remember that God is God and that he is going to do with your life whatever he is going to do with it. You just have to wait. This period of solitude can be for an extended period of time or it can be in small moments. Um, As an example, I get up in the morning before everyone else and I kind of sit by myself and just um, am am in the quiet of the morning. Heather uh, doesn't get up in the mornings because mornings are lame. <laughs> so she, um, she, she, she organizes her day a little bit different, but still has a rhythm where she can sit by herself and just be alone and reflect. Um, so we're looking after this quietness of heart that allows us to tap into what God might have for us and allows us to tap into um, a better idea of um, God's view of us as well. Henry Nouwen, the famous author, Christian author, says, Without the solitude of heart, our relationships with others easily become needy and greedy, sticky and clinging, dependent and sentimental, exploitative and parasitic. Because without solitude of heart, we cannot experience others as different from ourselves, but only as people who can be used for fulfillment of our own often hidden needs. Solitude drives us into quiet moments to sit alone before God to reflect and to pray. And in this, we find we are more in tune with God and we can see ourselves more for who we are. And we can see that we have our identity through Christ, not through other people and how we react to them. And we can be okay in that. And then we can enter into community in an honest way. 
in that time of solitude, we're faced with something else as well. We're faced with the human condition of the heart. And we're faced with all of the muck and the mire that sits there. And it leads us into a time of confession. Confession. (laughs) Yeah, everything was super cool until this point. We were going to go to the same coffee shop all the time. Maybe we were going to get into a community and serve in some cool way. Get some me time in the mornings. Maybe later in the day, take off work. I don't know. Everything was awesome. But now we're talking about confession. We're talking about sin. And things get a little bit different because no one likes to talk about the sin of the heart. No one likes to admit what's going on inside. We are stuck with shame from society through our sin. And we are stuck sometimes with really awful, crazy religious baggage that comes with our sin. And that makes it hard to confess because we don't want to admit that anything is going on there. But Jesus flipped this around too. It's not about religious guilt. It's not about doing anything. But instead, confession is a heavenly embrace from a father that cares about us. Confession is acceptance into love. It's completely different. Um, Jesus, Jesus was crucified. He hung on the cross. There were no painkillers. He was completely aware of what was going on. He could have gotten out of it, but he didn't. He hung there in love. He took the shame. He took all of your guilt, and he dealt with it, and he took care of it, and you don't need to worry about it anymore. This is what confession gives us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins. And typically, this confession is an inward expression, and I think that's beautiful, and we need that. But I want to challenge us to something else. I want to challenge us to communal confession. I want to challenge us to be able to step into our communities that we just talked about and confess our sins. Now, pastor and author Richard Foster says this is tough because when we, when we talk about confessing to friends, we, we think that we're living in a community of saints, but instead we're living in a fellowship of sinners. Uh, and in this change of perspective, in understanding that we are sinners together, our mutual confession can begin to uh, heal us And together we can put on the image of Christ. And together we can step into the transformation process that Jesus has for us. Now, this leads to two other thoughts. (laughs) Wisdom and discernment. I'm not suggesting go blab to your barista all of your sins. I'm also not suggesting that you, you know, start talking to some random person that you just met and letting them know everything going on in your life. If you feel like you need to do that, you should. But that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking instead about finding deep, wonderful, beautiful Christian friendships that allow this confession to happen. I, I was in a situation uh, a couple months back where uh, a friend took me to lunch and started, um, started just opening up about some stuff he was dealing with. And uh, I was, of course, intently listening, but I also kept thinking, how in the world are we in this place that he is sharing this with me? And I was just reflecting back over our friendship over the past year, and we had pretty randomly yet frequently email, or texted each other uh, words of encouragement, letting each other know what we were praying for each other and for our families. And we had built, we had built a friendship of, of, of mutual admiration and care and love for each other. And so it made sense for him to be vulnerable with me. And he led through that vulnerability. And as, as a result, our friendship deepened. And, um, and I was able to be vulnerable with him. And we were able to hold each other accountable. And it was this really amazing, beautiful step in our friendship. And, and look, I get that... Um, I get that those friendships are, are maybe feel like a dime a dozen, and I get that they're really hard to step into. But maybe if we all were thinking of it this way, maybe we could work towards these things. And until then, maybe we could take advantage of a beautiful pastoral staff that wants these things for us, or even during communion when there's people up front that want to um, hear our hearts and pray with us.
So in the construct that we've just talked about, we've, we've looked at cultivating our hearts in preparation for the graciousness and abundance of God's promises. Promises that God fulfills in the most mysterious of ways. We see that a practice of place can help cultivate our heart, specifically through communities that allow us to form a sense of rootedness within our place and to work towards redemption within our place. And we see a rhythm of rest, one that leads to solitude. And in solitude, we begin to see our, ourselves through, through Jesus, and we begin to have healthier communities, and we can begin to confess because we see the true condition of our heart. So now what? Well, uh, if you want something to last for a year, then you ask certain types of questions. If you want something to last for 100 years, then you ask different types of questions. And so the questions we are asking today are 100-year questions. They are answers, they, they are questions that don't have quick fixes. They are questions that don't have shortcuts. They are questions that, um, that don't have formulas and metrics and ways to solve them. Cultivation of the heart is the exact opposite of our culture. It is a long obedience in the same direction. It is patience and faithfulness. It is that lifelong endeavor. And in an on-demand society, cultivating your heart seems like a quaint idea of a bygone era. Um, Especially in Brooklyn, where you have to be on your game at all times. You have to be on top of it, or this place will crush you. But instead, you have to be crushing crushing it. You have to be accessible at all times. You have to do your part. You have to work your hardest, and you have to hustle. Jesus rejects that. Jesus completely rejects earthly constructs. He says, no, there's another way. He says, I am the way. And he says, through the way, through Jesus, you can have something completely different and radical. You can have peace and comfort and joy. The world will be flipped upside down. The sick will be healed. The last will be first. The lame will walk. The dead will rise. And you can have graciousness. And you can, his graciousness, you can have abundance. You can have full life and you can flourish. And this isn't a promise just for the Old Testament or for some future vision of eternity. It's a promise for now. We can have this right now in this moment in Brooklyn in 2017. It's crazy. The kingdom is now, brothers. The kingdom is now, sisters. Step into it. Look, we worship a gracious God. We worship a God that has so much more for us than we ever, ever could imagine. We worship a God of abundance, a God that wants us to have his promises. And we shift from effort to graciousness. We shift from scarcity to to abundance, and we allow Jesus to do what Jesus does. And Jesus takes it all, and he deals with it, and he can give us those things. But like the farmer, we cultivate our soil, we cultivate our hearts, and then we wait. The night before Jesus died, he ate a meal with his disciples, and he's talking to them, and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. We're going to pray now, and we're going to begin to prepare our hearts for communion. And I would ask that you just pray that God shift your view from effort to graciousness, that he would shift your perspective from scarcity to abundance, and that um, you would spend this time thinking through how you might look for practices and rhythms that can align your heart closer to God's.